I've been asking in this series simply, what is the gospel? You know, when we think about the gospel, it is a word that can be used in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different contexts and churches, it gets used. And I found that it was prudent for us to just slow down a minute and really ask, what is the gospel? Because everything in the Bible is not the gospel. The Bible tells us the entire story of Scripture and where the gospel fits in and precisely why the gospel is the gospel, meaning simply defined as good news. Why is Jesus good news? If we just have that without the greater plot, we don't fully understand. And so what we want to see is that the gospel is an aspect of God's story, and it is the climax and pointing to Jesus and God's story, but we needed to understand all aspects of the story to see where the gospel fits in. So the gospel is important, it's specific, but it is not everything. Not everything in the sense of we need gospel plus something. It is everything in that sense, but meaning not everything in the Bible is precisely the gospel. Do I believe all that's pointing to Jesus and the good news of Jesus as the gospel? Yes, but it's important for us to understand that all of it is the gospel. And so what is the gospel? We spent the first week looking at the gospel as story because we need to see exactly how things fit in the story. We got to understand how this detail or that detail fits in the greater story to best understand how your life fits into the gospel story. Speaking of stories, I'm reading the Chronicles of Narnia with my children at the time. So just a, a grateful to do so. We at night do our best. We do not do this every night because some nights and weeks are just worse than others. But most nights we attempt to end the night with reading a, a, a small chapter from uh, just like a kid's Bible. And then we come over to a fiction story and right now we're doing Chronicles of Narnia. Well, my kids discovered there's movies. So they quickly were like, let's watch the movies. But I was like, hold on, the book's so much better. And we haven't gotten to that part of the movie yet. But nonetheless, yesterday as just kind of our Sabbath, spending time as a family, we don't do a lot of technology on Saturdays because we just try to play outside. But they were like, it's a Christian movie, Dad, so can't we? So we, so we, watched, so we watched Narnia yesterday afternoon. But Narnia doesn't cover all seven of C.S. Lewis' books. It only covers a number of them, and we're still at the beginning. And so the first movie is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which we haven't gotten to in the book yet. And so my kids are watching this, and they're trying to tie characters in from the first book, The Magician's Nephew, into The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I'm having to tell them, no, that doesn't, that doesn't go, that doesn't go, that doesn't go. But here, here's the point is my kids got confused because they didn't understand the full story yet. They had this aspect of the story and this aspect of the story from a book, which has a lot more details than the movie, which is leaving out details, and they were just really confused because they were trying to overlay aspects of this part into this part, but they didn't understand the whole story and got confused. And so in week one, we did our best at a, at a high view to look at the gospel, or no, excuse me, to look at the gospel story, the story of Scripture and where the gospel fits into the creation, fall, redemption, and restoration of Jesus. In the last three weeks, we looked at gospel truths of justification, sanctification, and glorification. We looked at the details to make sure we understand that in justification, the, gos- the gospel, Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. And in sanctification, Jesus is saving us from the power of sin, that we are no longer held captive by the power, but are able to walk in a manner worthy. We'll talk more about that today. And then we looked at glorification, that one day Jesus will save us fully from the presence of sin in our life and in our world when he recreates all things. As if to say that the gospel saved us 
is saving us and will save us. Jesus is in a process of fully renewing and restoring, fully justifying us to be fully forgiven, to be stand before him one day in glorification as holy and just and right. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has done. So in light of that incredible good news that we have been saved and set free, I want us to look at gospel identity. Now, when we talk about gospel identity in relation to the others, just from a simple communication standpoint, you'll begin to notice already that I don't have a multi-page handout like I've had in the last few weeks over some of these topics because I wanted in justification, sanctification, glorification for us to make sure I was clear and you understood the details. When it comes to gospel identity, it is not a conceptually difficult thing for us to grasp. So there's not a lot of notes. There's not a lot of slides. But it is an incredibly difficult thing for our hearts to understand. And the reason why I say that is because of sin and because sin has corrupted our hearts, our hearts are at default in a place of running away from God. And at default, as Jeremiah would say, our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things, is into a works-based salvation that goes contrary to what the gospel is and the good news of salvation freely given in Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to talk about today is go, it's easy for us to say like one plus one equals two in the sense of the concept of adoption and the concept of identity in Christ is easy for our minds to go, yeah, that's not hard to understand, but it's a whole nother thing for our lives to be transformed. And so I hope today through the power of God's word and his spirit that he would help our hearts be transformed and better understand what it means to be adopted and children of God. Philippians chapter one It's going to be the one half verse I'm going to use to give a challenge to what it means for us to be children of God. But then we'll use other verses like Galatians and Romans, which we've already read, to begin to unpack this truth. But Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to encourage you to turn there in your Bibles because I want you to be able to see it. I want you to underline it. I want you to kind of walk through it as we unpack word by word this phrase. Philippians 1.27 says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We'll stop there. See, when we talk about the gospel story in week one and the justification, sanctification, glorification, this idea that we've been saved in Jesus, what now? Right, it's important for us to get and understand because Paul would say in Galatians that if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to the one I preached to you, let that person be accursed. Meaning the facts and the truth of the details of the gospel, justification, sanctification, glorification, the fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, is important for us to get. And I hope that in the last few weeks we've begun to grasp those better. But what then does that mean for me? And the challenge that Paul would give is only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Two questions I want to answer today and to simplify. First is who are we or who we are in Christ? Because of the truths of the gospel, who are we? What does that mean for us now as adopted? And then second, why do we do what we do, whatever it is that we do? As Christians, to be the context, why do we do what we do? And our relation to who we are and what we do are intrinsically linked the problem is, because of what I mentioned about our hearts, at default, being in a workspace salvation, that we, our hearts tend to lean towards doing things um, in order to earn God's love, that we get the 
usually mixed up between what we do and why we do it and who we are. And the idea of only let your manner be a worthy of the gospel of Christ and recognizing who we are in Christ will hopefully answer the question, who we are and why do we do what we do? So first, who are we or who we are in Christ? Who are we in Christ? Two passages we've already read. I want to read them again. Romans 8 and Galatians 4, and that will tie us back into Philippians 1. Romans 8, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. I want you to notice the language of who we are and what we do already. That we are not in debt to the flesh to then, out of that indebtedness, live according to the flesh. That is not who we are anymore. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will die. Live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Notice the language even there of who we are and what we do. If what we do are is led by the Spirit, then who we are, we are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have re- received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So in short, answering the question, who are we? Well, according to this text, that if we are in Christ, then that means we have been adopted as sons of God. Not conceptually difficult to understand, but what does that mean for our lives? What does it mean, the fact that we have been adopted and that we are heirs with Christ, to then cry out, Abba, Father? You know, I've mentioned this a number of times. I even mentioned that last week, and I said I would unpack it more this week. But when the original language for the New Testament is Greek, and Greek has male and female gender in its language. This is the same in Spanish, the same in Portuguese. Uh, I'm sure it's true in other languages as well. Those are the only two that I've, I've had any study outside of the biblical languages. But there's gender. English does not have this. But Spanish does, Portuguese does, Hebrew does, as well as uh, Greek. And so a lot of times, if you want to say something in the plural, even if it's inclusive in gender of male and female, you would still use the male or the masculine plural form. And so when the English translation is being written, the ESV will often translate, translate it in a very technical sense, which I like, that's why I use it, and it will take, if it is in the Greek, a masculine plural, it will translate it in English as also a masculine plural, but we know that masculine plural could also both mean male and female, so when it translates sons in English, it's not being exclusive to women, But in fact, it's just taking that masculine form from the Greek and bringing it over into the English. So a lot of times we can read this, and the NIV and the NLT may uh, make that interpretation and may translate it that you are sons and daughters. Instead of just saying sons, they might say sons and daughters. And this is a faithful thing to do if the context calls for it. I point that out to say I don't believe the context calls for it in this text. Meaning, I believe, based off the text, and I'll give an argument for it, that the writer is intentionally referring to masculine only. Now, let me be clear in what I'm saying in just a second. So don't immediately go, well, he's only talking to men in this passage. No, no, no. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he's talking to both. But I think the point he's trying to make is 
on the masculine sons only. And he's applying that both to men and women in the audience. Let me explain. In the Old Testament, New Testament is still the same up through the time of Christ. Who inherited family property from one generation to the next? The sons did. There's one example I have found in the Old Testament where, where daughters inherited because there were no sons. And so when we talk about inheritance, when we talk about uh, even now in the one you're reading, I'm reading through David, right? And the, the season of David. So David and his inheritance is passed on to Solomon, and it's passed on, it's passed on, it's passed on. We even see this clearly in, uh, when we look at family trees and heritages within both the Old and New Testament. Go read uh, the beginning of Genesis. And so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so went from male to male to male to male to male. Inheritance. What the family, the ownership, all the goods, everything that a family had was passed on to the sons. And even within that, the firstborn and the second, they all had their deviations of what happened. So when here, when Paul is saying that in Christ we all become sons of God, I don't believe he is saying that all of us change gender into sons. But what I do say is that we all are receiving the inheritance as if we are sons. See the difference? What he's saying is that in Christ, both male and female are, are now sons of God, meaning that we all inherit God's goodness. Well, pastor, it's kind of weird that he's referring to daughters as sons here. Well, we refer to the church as the bride of Christ. I'm comfortable being called the bride of Christ. As a male, the point is, is that it's not an emphasis on gender. It's an emphasis on what that gender represents. And in this text, the gender of sons represents the inheritance given on to the next generation. So for who you are, you are adopted into the family of Christ in Jesus, and you receive the inheritance that is, comes with being a son of Jesus, even if you are a daughter in Christ. Because you are receiving. The emphasis is not on your gender. The emphasis is on the fact that you are an inheritance. And I think Paul's intentional to point that out by not saying sons and daughters. Because he's saying all of you are not sons and daughters. All of you are sons now, meaning you have the inheritance. So who are we? That you are people undeservedly adopted into the kingdom of God to receive an inheritance for all eternity of all the blessings and all the goodness in the heavenly realms have been given to you. I don't think we fully grasp that in our lives. Like, it, it's one thing, and, and I'm being honest, because as a pastor, and even as a Christian myself, it's easy for me to conceptually get this, but my heart often forgets. I remember, you know, also with the one you're reading, one of the things that I notice every year is that God does something incredible, like splitting the Red, the red Sea and tells people to walk through it, and it's like, oh, you're going to forget this one day, so put a pillar up. Like, how are they going to forget that? Like, if, if I walk through the Red Sea, I'd never forget it. And then all, God does all these incredible things, and he tells them to put a pillar up. He says, because you're going to forget it. And so when it comes to Jesus on the night that he's betrayed on the Lord's Supper, he says, take this often because you will forget it. If the Red Sea is something I shouldn't forget, then the fact that Jesus died on the cross to give me an inheritance for all eternity should be something I never forget, but yet we forget it often. Our hearts forget it often. And so today I want us to see that who you are in Christ is everything. The fact that when we talk about this call of Philippians 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's basically saying let your life live out who you are. 
Galatians, moving forward, Galatians 4 says something very similar. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so they might receive adoption as sons. Once again, not sons and daughters. I believe it's adoption as sons. Because if you're adopted as a son, you get the full inheritance. You're adopted as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When we adopted Ella into our family, we went on a cruise recently. I just realized I started a story and then kind of stopped and started a different story, but they go together. We adopted Ella. Cool. Come back to that. We went on a cruise a couple weeks ago. A family did that. It was a one-year anniversary of my dad's passing, and so my mom kind of took all of us on a family trip on a cruise. Never done that before. But um, we were, had to take our, we, our kids didn't have passport, but that was okay. We could take our, their birth certificates. And I remember going back through customs on the way back in with Ella's birth certificate and walking up to uh, the, um, the officer. And I, I had this thought. I don't know if it was right or wrong, but I had this thought. He's sitting there looking at our family, and he's looking at all these birth certificates. Samuel Nason, Levi Nason, Jonathan Nason, Jenna Nason, Ella Nason. Oh, you, you don't look like them. Are you, are, are you really one of them? Because I'm looking at all, he didn't say this. This is, what I, this is what I thought he was, no, he was very kind, and he was awesome. And, uh, but I was thinking that. I was thinking, is he going to have a question? Because the whole point, we got put in a line to make sure that the birth certificates matched who you really were. So, like, that's his whole job to go, is this birth certificate fit that person? And I thought, well, she doesn't look like us, and so naturally that might cause a pause. And it didn't, I'm grateful for that. But the point is, is that she didn't have a birth certificate other than ours. And she may not have looked like us, but that made her birth certificate no less us. That even though her skin color is different than ours, she's a nascent. And she is my daughter. And she has the same inheritance as my sons do. Because we don't do the sons and daughters thing. We do it all. Your family, your child, right? So all of my family has the same inheritance. And I just remember thinking that no matter what she looks like, no matter what her background is, no matter where she came from, her birth certificate says she is mine. She's as much mine as my biological children are. She is mine. And the same is true that when you and I are adopted, here, here's the beautiful thing. I, I want to get this. This is the thought that crossed my mind this week. Is that not only do all of us have the same birth certificate, at being a part of Christ's family. But we have Christ's birth certificate stamped on us. Like, it's not that we're his, like, we're in his family, which we are, but it's another picture that crossed my mind that, no, we have the righteousness of Christ on us. My birth certificate says you are welcome because Jesus' name is stamped on top of your name. That Jesus' name is stepped on top of your sin. That it's not because of me, but it's because of him, and his name is stamped there. So when the Father is the customs agent, if you will, welcoming us into heaven, I'm not going to be worried about my past. Because when he sees my birth certificate, he's going to see Jesus. This is what it means to be adopted as sons of God into that inheritance. And so when Paul says in Philippians 1, only then... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, here's the challenge I want to begin to give. is who are we? Great. Now, why do we do what we do as Christians? 
Why do we read our Bibles? Why do we pray? Why are we faithful to the commands of God? Why are we obedient to him? Why do we share the gospel? I can tell you why we should do it. Then I can tell you often why our hearts tend to do it. I find it interesting that it's in Romans 8 where he says that you have not been given a spirit of fear anymore, but you've been given a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. Uh, It's Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, a few theologians kind of say the similar idea that all of us do something pretty much for one of two reasons, heart motivations, either out of pride or fear. That we will, and especially as it relates to the Christian life, because that's the context we're using this, is that we will often, even as Christians, if we're not careful, will serve God out of fear or pride. Let's talk about those for a second. Out of fear. Why would we serve God out of fear? It goes usually a lot of times something like this. Well, if you sin, um, you ever heard that my brother used to tell it to me all the time, liars go to hell. Well, well that's, there is a passage that says that, yes. But the point that he's trying to do when he says that to me, he's trying to make me afraid to lie. And so because I, I, I don't want to get in trouble for lying, I don't want my mom to get on to me, I don't want to go to hell, or I don't want to do this, or I don't want to do that, I guess I won't lie. Why was I being faithful to God's command not to lie? Because I was afraid of something. Or it could be the opposite with pride. I'm better than my brother. He lies all the time. I don't. <laughs> which, which is kind of the truth. <laughs> I don't lie. I just said that, right? See, see what I just did there? Is I was faithful to God's commandment out of pride of my own self-righteousness. Here's what religion and works-based salvation does in our hearts, is that it tends to cause us to be faithful to God out of fear of an unloving, wrathful father, or out of self-righteousness pride, like an older brother in the prodigal son who says, I'm better than. But here's, if we understand the gospel... Paul is, yes, giving a challenge. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Yes, we are expected to live in a certain way. But why we do live in that way matters greatly. And if we don't start with our identity in Christ and recognizing that we are a part of his family because his name is stamped on our birth certificate, then we will tend to live for him out of fear of something or in self-righteous pride instead of an invitation to live faithful to him simply because of worship towards him. And this is what it means to live out a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let me unpack specifically this phrase. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only. I'd imagine Paul, Silas together writing... Paul's, uh, whether we know if Silas was writing it or and Paul was dictating it or Paul was writing, we don't always know. But Im- imagine this moment where Paul says, only, only. And immediately Silas and others, disciples around going, going, ooh, are you sure you want to say only? Because you actually have a lot of things to say. You have a lot of commands to say. In fact, you, you do say a lot of other things. So what's the idea with only here? It reminds me of Psalms 27 when When King David says, there's only one thing have I asked of, that will I seek after. It's not that King David had one thing numerically to ask of, but he's saying it's the preeminent one thing in which I'm asking. I think Paul is using only here in a similar way, meaning this is of utmost importance. If you would just, he's saying, if you'll you'll just do this, 
if you'll let your manner of life be worthy. Now, this is an interesting phrase. For me, it is. I'm the nerd in the group, I guess. Let your manner of life. It's, it's the word in Greek that we can use, depending on context, to, for politics or city. And it's actually to speak of, it's translated in other places to, as simply citizenship. As if to say, Paul is making it clear, only allow your citizenship be reflected in your life. It's in contrast to Ephesians and Colossians. Paul says something similar. He says this, Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Colossians 1, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In both Ephesians and Colossians, he gives a command to walk as if your life. But in Philippians, he doesn't give a command to walk. He simply says, let your citizenship be revealed. I was having a conversation this morning. I had the privilege. Um, I love preaching, and I love my job And in general. I got to preach at a church at 10 o'clock in Elmhurst, and then at 1 o'clock in Manhattan, and then back out here today. It's been a long, fun day. But at the 10 o'clock service, a lady came up to me and said, oh, I heard you're from Tennessee. Uh, I was like, yeah. I was like, I'm from Tennessee also. I was like, where? Nashville. And her husband was from Memphis, and we had all this long conversation. And she was like, your accent, I could tell when you're preaching, like, I just felt like it was Tennessee. Like, I just felt like it. And so I went and asked. And she, anyway, we had this whole conversation then about accent. And I said, do you still get the question, like, when you start talking to someone where they just look at you and go, where are you from? And she was like, yes, I still get that. She goes, I don't have an accent, though. They all have an accent. I'm, I'm all normal. And I'm like, yeah, I think you're normal, too. But I said, that was the question. I said, I kept getting that question my first year. And then I told him about the whole naked thing. I always think of Jess and the whole, not, because I preached on naked, and she kept giving me a hard time for saying it wrong. And she, Nason, naked. I said it all weird, and everybody made fun of me. And anyway, so I was telling all these stories about my accents and how I did everything's wrong, and but the point is, my accent betrayed where I was from. Here's what Paul's saying in this text. Let your citizenship betray the fact that you are worthy of Jesus. As you live here on earth, might you live in such a way, people go, where are you from? Where are you from? And I want to give a challenge because I, I, something has bugged me a little bit. One of the most, which is important, so hear me out. I think one of the most common things I'm seeing in our churches today around evangelism, which is good, is that we, and we're actually going to do this on June 18th, an evangelism training, and teach you how to share the gospel, ask good questions, get in conversation. But where's the whole evangelism strategy that is simply said, live so radical that people ask where you're from? Like, where did that evangelism strategy go to? Because I think that's what Paul's getting at just a little bit here. Only live in such a way that people go, where are you from? Like, you're, you're not from here because people of the world don't live this way. People of the world don't act like this. People of the world don't love like this and care like this. People don't do this. Where are you from? Church family, I want to encourage us to be challenged with let us live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, not out of pride and self-righteousness that we're better than others or out of fear that God doesn't love us and we're trying to earn his favor, 
but instead because we recognize that no matter what happens, we have Jesus stamped on the eternity of our hearts, that we are righteous because of him, and out of great love and adoration for him, we simply go and live the Christian life worthy of the stamp of the gospel that is on our lives. This is what it means to answer the question, where are we from, or specifically who we are and how we do or why we do what we do. So Christian, today as you leave, I hope that you are so been so captivated by the love of Jesus that you don't walk out of here going, I've got to be a better Christian because I, if I'm not, then I'm not, I'm not a good Christian and God won't love me or this or that or whatever. People will think bad of me. See, all of those motives are selfish. But instead, let us go, I walk out of here and out of adoration for the goodness of God in my life, I will love others. I will care for others. I will be faithful to his word. I will, I will live out worthy. And so, church family, I close simply with this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Might we live this week in worship of Christ in such a way that people go, where are you from? Because I've never seen someone love like that. I've never seen someone care for me like that. Where are you from? But the reality is, is that we cannot live that way if we are not citizens of heaven. And so the question is, are you a citizen of heaven? We do not live that way in order to earn citizenship, but citizenship has been freely given in Jesus. And we live out of that citizenship in a manner that is worthy. Let us not be people who live for Christ in order to earn Christ, but recognize that can never happen. But we've been freely given this gift of salvation in Christ. Therefore, we go live in a manner worthy. Christian, be set free from the bondage that you've got to live a certain way in order for Christ to love you. Christ loves you despite you. He loves you simply because it's who he is. And he has poured out his entire life on the cross to display his love for you. Would you be adopted into his family and might you live in a manner worthy of his calling? Jesus, we thank you. I'm so grateful that I'm a son of the king. Jesus, I'm so grateful that my birth certificate has Jesus stamped on it. I'm so grateful for that. And so Jesus, today, would you help me honor you with my life? Would you help me be faithful to your commandments? The fact that we've been forgiven doesn't mean we can just go live however we want. No, I don't want to do that. I want to honor you because I recognize how good your grace is. And so would you then, out of that wanting, would you empower us by your spirit to live faithful to you? Would you help us? Would you help us? But Jesus, I pray over this room, if there's someone in here who is not a son of yours, meaning they are not a part of your kingdom. They're not a part of your family. They do not have Jesus stamped on their birth certificate yet. In the heart of their life for all eternity, might today be the day for salvation. Spirit of God, would you awaken their heart unto you in faith? Might they see their desperation for you and respond in faith? And Jesus, I pray for all the sons and daughters in this room that we would go live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. 
We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.